All right. Good evening. How's everybody doing? Good. Well, it's good to be here with you. My name is Tripp. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I'm from Texas, so it feels good to be in Texas. I'm saying I'm from Dallas. And uh, <laughs> did somebody just yeehaw? That ain't the Texas I'm from, bro. Uh, <laughs> but I'm so excited to be here with you today. Um, and went through a lot to be here, preached at my church uh, cornerstone this morning in Atlanta. I hopped on a flight uh, because I was excited to be here and worship with you guys. Uh, so I'm praying the Lord to speak to us by his word today. And I want to talk specifically about love, which is something that is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, So it's an important topic for us to talk about. And I want to begin by saying this, when you make a claim, you have to back it up. So whenever you you make a claim with your words, you have to back it up with your actions, right? People say actions speak louder than words. One of the clearest examples of this to me uh, was a story from when I was in middle school. So I, so I grew up in Dallas, Texas. Um, and in Dallas, I had like three woos and a five o'clock too. So shout out to the people who woo for Dallas. Uh, I grew up in, in Dallas, Texas. And I went to this college prep school. So I went to this private school. I was not happy about it, but it's where my parents sent me. It's not exactly the birthplace of many rappers, but it's where I was. God is sovereign even over these things. And because I was at this private school, I, and I always loved basketball. My dad told me about bas- basketball, played basketball since I was a little kid. But because I was at this private school, I was under the impression that I was a better than average basketball player because everybody was terrible at this private school. <laughs> and so because I was about average compared to terrible, I looked like the baby Michael Jordan. And so when it was about, I think it was seventh to eighth grade, a, a new kid was coming to the school. And he was from a public school where people actually play basketball well. <laughs> and he came to the school and he was like, yeah, man, I heard you, you think you're going to be the starting point guard. I was like, I will be the starting point guard. <laughs> He's like, nah, man, I'm going to take that. And so at that moment, I felt the need to assert my basketball dominance. And I said, no, I don't know who told you that, but I don't think you know who you're talking to. I eat, sleep, and breathe basketball. I think I went a little overboard, but I was making claims about what would happen. And so tryouts come, and the only thing I'll say is that it was soon after that that I got into music. (laughs) I say that to say, when you make a claim, you got to back it up. When you say something with your words, you have to back it up with your actions. As believers in Jesus, one of the claims that we often make is that we love one another. We often claim that we love one another. One of my questions for us today is whether or not we actually do. Do you love the other Christians in this room? Do you love the other Christians that are part of your local church? Do you love your brothers and sisters overseas? We shouldn't just assume that we do. We should ask ourselves those questions. I mean, we think about gatherings like this, church gatherings, where we come together to worship Jesus. In order to just sit in this room with other Christians and sing songs and listen to preaching, you don't actually have to love anybody. You just got to tolerate people for a little bit, right? Like, man, this dude next to me stinks a little bit, but it's 20 more minutes and I'm out of here. Right? You don't have to do anything that's required to be loving. I mean, people gather people together all the time and sing songs and listen to stuff. What is it that separates a gathering like this from a gathering like a concert or some random conference? 
I want you to even think about your small group. What is it that separates your small group gathering from any other kind of gathering of a small amount of people? What is it that makes that different than a, a work meeting or, or any other kind of small party? The difference should be love. The difference should be Christian love. But again, we want to ask whether or not it actually is. Because we don't want to call something love that isn't love at all. So let's begin by trying to define love. For a lot of us, when we think love, a certain thing pops into our mind that's going to be very different than what John is going to talk about in 1 John 3. Usually when we think love, the first thing that comes to mind is like warm, fuzzy feelings, romantic comedies, (laughs) Valentine's Day and those gross chalky candies we give each other on Valentine's (laughs) Day. These are the kind of things that come to mind when we think love. Maybe you think of this just strong attraction to somebody that compels you to them and makes you want to build your life around them. I want to read you the lyrics from a song that talks about this kind of love. It says, see, I don't need no alcohol because your love makes me feel 10 feet tall. Without it, I'd go through withdrawal because nothing even matters at all. Now the skies could fall. Not even if my boss should call the world, it seems so very small because nothing even matters at all. You're part of my identity. I sometimes have the tendency to look at you religiously because nothing even matters to me. In this song, uh, these artists are basically saying, I love you so much that nothing else in the universe matters. And saying, I love you so much, it don't matter if my boss is calling, I'm supposed to be at work. I love you so much, it doesn't matter. Right? You're part of who I am. I look at you religiously. This is how we often think of love. And and just what I want to say is, this is not the kind of love that we're going to talk about today from 1 John 3. It's not what Scripture is going to mean. The kind of love that makes you build your life around another human being. Now, what I don't want to say is that there's not any room for romantic love in Scripture, or even intoxicating romantic love in Scripture. There is. Shout out to my wife. I've experienced this kind of love. <laughs> but the kind of love that we're going to talk about today is not just merely a feeling. It's not just a warm feeling with somebody. It's more substantial than that. It's more enduring than that. It's even more difficult than that. So so here's how I want to define it. And I think based on this passage and based on Scripture that love is a holy affection for someone and a selfless commitment to their good. That love is a holy affection for someone and a selfless commitment to their good. I want you to keep that in mind as we go through this passage and we think about love. That's the kind of love we're talking about. We'll be looking at 1 John Three today. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. And as you turn there, I'll give you a little bit of background. Of course, John was one of the disciples of Jesus who dropped everything to follow Jesus and even had a special relationship with Jesus. He was in the inner circle. And that apostle John writes the gospel of John and he writes these letters to be read by communities of Christians. And here in chapter 3, he's talking about identity. He's talking about how you know that you're a Christian. And he's just said that, hey, the way you know if you're a child of the devil or a child of God is whether or not you love the brothers. And he tells us to love one another, not to hate one another. But he doesn't leave us with this abstract idea of love somewhere in the air. He defines it for us, gives us a clear picture. And that's what we're going to read about in 1 John 3, starting at verse 16. This is what God's word says. He says, by this we know love. 
that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And I think the main point of this passage is that Jesus' death is the perfect example of love. So we too should love with our actions. When we look at the cross, that's a perfect example of love, and we should look to that cross and the actions of Jesus, and we too should love with our actions. So we'll just look at this passage in three points because no matter what passage I have, I can find three points in it. So we're going to walk through it in three points. Number one, if you want to know how to love, how to treat other Christians, number one, lay down your life. Lay down your life. John's saying, if you want to know how to treat other Christians, treat them like Jesus did. Treat them like Jesus did. In order to learn how to walk, what do kids do? Little kids, little babies, they watch their parents, right? So I have two kids. I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. Um, help me, Lord. Um, <laughs> and one of the coolest things is getting to watch them do new things. And so my son, he's, he's three now, so obviously he's, he's known how to walk for a while. And my daughter, she's one. She's walking. And it's so cool to watch them walk. But it's also very frightening because their head is a little bit too big for their little small bodies. So they fall a lot. It's like it just kind of tips them over. And they always fall like right near a corner. Which is almost concussion at all times. But the most amazing thing is it's like they're crawling around and they see us like, man, that looks more efficient. And somehow they can figure out how to walk. I mean, it's amazing to see. Even talking, same thing. I mean, kids, they learn how to talk by watching their parents. They begin to form words. My son is in a stage right now where he repeats every single word you say. No matter what you say, he will repeat it. So you need to watch what you say. But he's learned by watching me. I mean, this is how kids learn how to talk. They have a model in their parents, and they model it after them. They don't have to make up these concepts. Well, in a similar fashion, the way that God has been good to us is that when he calls us to love one another, he hasn't left us with an abstract idea of love. He hasn't left us to figure out what love looks like. He hasn't left us to make up some way to love. Instead, he said, look at Jesus. The Bible is going to point to Jesus and specifically his death as the perfect model of what our love should look like. He's saying, this is how you know love. This is how you know what love looks like, the death of Jesus. We don't have to wonder. So if the death of Jesus then is the perfect example of love, if we're going to think about how to love each other, I think it would be good for us to meditate for a second on the death of our Lord. And to look at what it says in this text. It says, Jesus laid down his life for us. Now, I think we've heard so many times that Jesus died for us. Then when we see things like this in Scripture, Jesus laid down his life for us, we just kind of skip over it. Like, oh, yeah, this is basic knowledge. I've seen this many times before. But we should not skip over how amazing it is that the Son of God laid down his life for us. This is not just some random death. This is not just some random martyrdom. Right? Because we could talk about all kinds of martyrs, but there's something very unique about the death of Jesus. I mean, look at the language John uses. He doesn't just say Jesus was killed. He doesn't just say he was murdered. He doesn't just say he passed away. He said he laid his life down. 
His life was not snatched from his hands. He gave it away. There's a very big difference between me walking outside of my house, seeing somebody and handing them some money, giving it to them, and me walking outside of my house and being robbed at gunpoint and me having to give my money over to them, right? Big difference between those. One of them is robbery and the other one is charity. When we talk about the death of Jesus, it was not stole, his life was not stolen from him. He gave it away. It was not robbery, but charity. Listen to what Jesus says in John 10, 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have. At the cross, at the crucifixion, Jesus was not passive. It wasn't just happening to him. Jesus was actively laying his life down. Not robbery, but charity. As if it wasn't already enough, right, that Jesus came to our filthy, fallen earth. As if it wasn't already enough that Jesus became a man. As if it wasn't already enough that the Son of God was born of a woman that he created and then breathed his first breath of oxygen, a thing that he thought up and spoke into existence. As if it wasn't enough that he submitted himself to learning and to growing and maturing like a regular man. As if it wasn't enough that he hungered and he thirsted and he got tired like a regular human being. As if that wasn't enough for Jesus to sacrifice, Jesus sacrificed his very life. There is nothing more that you can sacrifice than your very life. There are great sacrifices you can make of your time and of your energy and of your resources, but there is nothing more that you can give than your life itself. Jesus gave his life. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. So even though there have been some people who've been willingly killed for something they did or something they believed in, Jesus is different. He's not an ordinary martyr. As the second person of the Trinity and the eternal Godhead, Jesus was aware and willing to lay his life down even before he was born and he lived according to that plan. Who else could even make that kind of claim? Death of Jesus was unique. I mean, who else was sovereign over the people that murdered them? Who else created the very people that murdered them? Who else holds the universe together by the word of his power and so sustains the very people that murdered him? There is no one and there is no death like the death of Jesus. No one has had that awareness and power to lay their life down like Jesus did. And no one has had the authority and power to take it back up like Jesus did. There is no death like the death of Jesus. I wonder how much you think about the death of Jesus. You can't love your brothers and sisters well if you never think about it, if this is the picture we have of love. I mean, if Jesus is that perfect example of love, don't we have to think about and meditate on this death of Jesus in order to do it well? Somebody may say, man, that sounds crazy that the Son of God would die. Why would he do that? Why would he lay his life down? Why would he give it away like that? What motivated him to do it? But John says right here in this text, he laid his life down for us. I want you to pause and consider that for a moment. Christian, fearfully and wonderfully made, but tragically broken, you. Laid his life down for you. Sinful and envious, 
and lustful and rebellious and and insecure and, and selfish. You. Jesus laid his life down for you. What does that say about the love of Christ for us? Right? That despite all those things, Jesus laid his life down for us. One thing it says is, Jesus' love for us is not dependent on how lovable we are. It's not based on how lovable we are, but how loving he is. It's not based on our performance, but on his character. That he would love us despite all those things. I wonder if the love of God shown off at the cross has encouraged you this week. I know many of us have had hard weeks. I've had a very hard week. Hard weeks where you're very discouraged, where nothing seems to be going right. I wonder if when you have weeks like that, you ever think about the love of God at the cross. The love God shows us at the cross shows us some incredible things. One thing it shows us is how powerful God is and the lengths he's willing to go to take care of us. Another thing it shows us is we can't assume that God doesn't want to give us good things. Because as Romans 8 says, he's already freely given us his son. Won't he also freely with him give us all things? I mean, if God has given that which is most valuable to him, how could we ever question if God would be willing to give us good things? So that means if there's something in your life, I mean, if you're going through a hard time or there's something that you've been praying for, something that you feel like you desperately desire and need, if you don't have that, it's not because God is unwilling to give you good things. We've already seen he's given his son. It must be because he has something better in mind, something that glorifies him more and something that's ultimately better for you. Man, God's love for us at the cross should encourage us. It should should comfort us. It should heal us in our discouragement. So after reminding us then about the gracious, heroic, loving death of Jesus, John then turns and he gives us the command. He says, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Remember, this is, this is the point here, that we should lay our lives down for one another. Now, let me tell you what I don't think John is saying. I do not think that John is saying, hey, everybody here at Austin Stone, you need to find a way to die for another Christian this week. I don't think that's what he's saying. You couldn't make that application very many times from the pulpit because the church would be empty. I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think he's telling us to sacrifice our our physical lives for everybody every week. I think he's getting at the self-denying nature of the Christian life. Now, there may be some rare cases where love requires literal death. One example I can think of is William Tyndale, who died trying to make sure people like us can read the Bible in our English language. So there are rare cases like that, but that's not the case for most of us. But what is required of every single one of us, without exception, is self-sacrifice and daily death to self. It doesn't say we should consider it. It's an option. He says we ought to. That word in the original language has the sense of obligation. It's what we must do in light of what Christ has done for us. And so the fact that this is our example should tell us something about our faith. I mean, what does it say about being a Christian that this is the model we're given to follow? Our model is not a a pat on the back, but it's a bloody death. Right? It's not a cheerful phrase, but it's sacrificing everything. I mean, it tells us that the Christian life is one of self-denial and specifically self-sacrificing love. 
And so if, you, if you're here today and you're thinking, man, this Christian life is not as bubbly as I thought it was, we would do well to remember that the most prominent example Scripture gives us for what our lives would be like is, of course, the death of Jesus. The Christian life is a fight of self-denial every single day. And here John is calling us to deny ourselves to love the brothers, to love other Christians. But somebody might say, hey, Tripp, which Christians am I supposed to lay my life down for? Which brothers? Just the lovable ones, right? The ones that lent me $5 when I needed it because I'm a broke college student, right? The ones that are cool, the ones that are cool hipsters like me, right? This is what it says in, in Romans 5. The Apostle Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What we see from texts like this is that Jesus died for a messy people, people who were messed up while they were messed up. And God has called us to love messy people who are messed up. So if we're going to love like Jesus did, we, we can't only love people who are loving towards us or those who aren't resistant to our love. The kind of love that John calls us to is stronger than, hey, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. The love that John calls us to is more like, hey, even if you stab me in my back, I'll scratch yours. Not choosing who's lovable and who's not. And when we decide to say, I refuse to lay my life down for this person because they're not lovable, and I refuse to lay my life down for this person because of what they've done to me, then we're denying the beauty and the nature of the gospel itself. Jesus died for messy people, laid his life down for them, and he's called us to do the same. So, Of course, in this text here, John is talking to Christians about loving other Christians. But I know that there are many people who aren't Christians who consider themselves to be loving. Maybe you're here right now when you're not a Christian and you say, hey, I don't know what the death of Jesus has to do with me and my love. Of course, I would never suggest that if you're not a Christian, you can't do anything loving. But according to this text, if you don't know Christ, you don't know love. At least not the the love that John is talking about. Because this holy affection and selfless commitment to to the good of others can only truly come from the source of true love. That's the uniqueness of Christian love, that it flows from the source of our love. Not only that, but this love has God above all. There, There can't be a holy affection for others if you don't know the Holy One, right? And you can't seek someone's good if you don't know what's actually good. And who tells us what's good but the source of good himself? We cannot decide we're going to come up with what's good on our own. When we begin to try to define what's good by ourselves, things get really strange and really confusing really quickly. It has to be built around God. Our world today is so confused about what's good and about what's loving. Right? I mean, it's like it's wrong to ever call somebody out for something or or to warn somebody about something. That's not loving. I mean, if, if after this service, I walked out to the parking lot and a friend of mine was walking in front of a car, I was like, hey, 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 don't do that. You shouldn't do that. And he's like, come on, where's the love, brother? Don't you tell me what to do? Do you love me or not? <laughs> and of course, it's loving for me to warn him about behavior that's going to lead to destruction, Right? 
I mean, we cannot define love ourselves by saying, hey, love is only when you say something cheery to somebody and pat them on the back. Sometimes love is hard to hear. If we're really committed to the good of other people, then sometimes we'll say hard things that are good for people. And that's what happens when we can build this love around God himself. So it's not loving to affirm people in their sin, to support them in those things. It's not loving to love somebody more than God. If we don't know Christ, we can't really know love. Look, if you are here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to know this love. I mean, even though I don't know you well, I desire that you would know Christ. I mean, I hope as you hear this, you're blown away by the love of Jesus. Who in your life loves you like Jesus loves his people? Who in your life would lay down their life for you while you're a mess? Man, the love of Jesus is amazing that he died even while we were sinners. And the beautiful thing about the cross is, even though our sin separates us from God, we don't have to be separated from God because God loved us so much that Christ laid his life down. And he paid the penalty for our sins. And he rose from the grave victorious over death and over sin. And if you would trust Jesus, even right now, right now, sitting where you are, you can turn from your sin and trust Jesus and you can know God and you can know this love. I want you to know this love. There is no love like this love. So I pray you would turn from your sins and trust Jesus. All right, so Jesus is the perfect example of love, so our love should show up in our actions, right? So that, that's the first point. We should lay our life down. That was by far the longest point. Don't be afraid. <laughs> Number one, lay down your life. <laughs> Some of y'all are like, ah, got an appointment. Nah. Uh, number two, open your heart. Number two is open your heart. The world has a very different view of material things than Scripture does. I mean, this, this is how the world thinks about stuff. Get as much as you possibly can and then enjoy it as, you, as much as you possibly can. That's how the world thinks about stuff. And the thing that's so appealing, the reason that's such an appealing message to us is because it's exactly what our hearts want to hear. We want to keep things to ourselves. Get as much as we can and keep it to ourselves. But whenever Scripture talks about stuff and Scripture talks about money or material things, it's often warning us and exhorting us towards generosity. And that generosity plays a big role in our love for one another. So look at verse 17 with me. It says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So John has already given this sacrificial picture of love by pointing to Jesus, and now he immediately applies it to a real-life situation, almost like a litmus test, saying, okay, so you, so you love your brothers? What do you do when you see a brother or sister in need? When he says, if you have the world's goods, he means material things, meaning you have what you need. You have plenty, materially. Some of y'all are like, I'm a, I'm a college student. This don't apply to me. I don't have nothing. So the picture here that he's painting is of someone who has everything they need. They see their brother or sister who doesn't have what they need, yet they close their hearts toward them. He's not saying you don't have nothing and they don't have nothing. He's saying you have what you need and you close off your hearts to someone who needs you. So it's already clear John makes assumptions about finances that the world doesn't. John assumes that as Christians, 
that we're not just responsible for ourselves, but that we have some kind of responsibility for one another. He assumes that real love isn't too weak to make it to our wallets. He assumes that money, even our money, isn't finally our money in the sense that we only use it for ourselves. Look, don't be confused because it's your name on the bank account, it's your name on the debit card, and it's your name on the top of the check. That money belongs to God. I mean, you should think of whoever's name is on the card or the check or the bank account, that's the one who gets to manage that money. That money finally belongs to God. And, And John here is making that assumption. The crazy thing is money is so easy to turn into an idol, especially if we have a lot of it. So someone may say, what does me having what I need have to do with them? I mean, I've worked really hard for my money. But Scripture says we cannot faithfully think about our finances without actually thinking about our brothers and sisters. So an encouragement I have for you is when you're making your monthly budget, if you don't make a monthly budget, you should make a monthly budget. But when you're making your monthly budget, you should think about Where can I have money that I can use to help brothers or sisters in need? It's part of faithfully thinking about what God has given you. So if you're here today and you're doing okay, you have what you need, I wonder if you think God gave you that just so you could enjoy it for yourself, just so you can get whatever you feel like acquiring, just so you can have the security of knowing a little bit of money is stacking up in the bank. Scripture's clear that if any of us are rich, it's so we can be rich in good works. It should lead to greater generosity on our part. So we have to be careful not to cling to our money, but to fight that greed with generosity. So someone might say, that's not fair. How am I going to work hard to help other people? What about me? Well, in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul makes clear. He says, if I don't mean that others should be eased and you should be burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. Basically, he's saying, look, if you have more than you need, help those who don't have what they need. And then when you're struggling a little bit, then they can help you. He's saying, look, we care for each other enough and we understand our stuff is not just ours enough to love and care for one another. And that's good. Verse 17, I'll read it again. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. What does that mean to close your heart against him? That's basically refusing to care about them and then refusing to care for them. One example I read of this was Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple. We know who he is because we have his products in our pockets and now some of us even on our wrists. And I'm preaching from one of his products even now. So Steve Jobs, he had this daughter uh, before he got married. Her name was Lisa. And he was in denial at first. I mean, uh, this is in uh, his biography, the biography that Walter Isaacson wrote. And in this biography, it says, look, he, they had a hard relationship. He denied her at first. He abandoned her. But then they eventually, he claimed her, and they had this up-and-down relationship. And so one time when it was time for her to go to college, she went to her dad to say, hey, I need money for college. And it was a time when they were not doing so well. They were beefing a little bit. And, you know, he said to her, no. I won't pay for your college. Already a millionaire at this point. He closes off his heart to her. She has to go to a family friend to try to get money to go to college, even though her dad has millions. And so when we hear that, we think, oh, that's, that's cruel, right, that he has and that she's in need, and he has a responsibility to her as his daughter, and he refuses to care for her. That's the sense of this passage, closing off your heart to those who are in need, who you have responsibility to. 
But most of the time when we close off our hearts, it's not because we're bitter like Steve Jobs. It's because we're apathetic and oblivious, that there are needy brothers and sisters all around us that we don't even see. And it's because we're so wrapped up in ourselves that we go through life from week to week so wrapped up in our wants and our desires and our problems and our own needs that we don't even see the needs of other people. You know, almost like when somebody's on their phone walking down a busy street and they're so wrapped up in it, they're bumping into people. I mean, that's us sometimes. We're so wrapped up in ourselves. We're not intentionally ignoring people, but we're so wrapped up in ourselves that we don't see it. Would you even know if the brothers and sisters around you were needy? Are you so wrapped up in your life that you can't see the needs of others? Like, when was the last time you asked somebody if they needed something? When was the last time you offered help to a family that you thought might be in need? Loving each other means we have to actually pay attention to each other. Meeting each other's needs means we actually have to know what each other needs. So that might mean after this service, even now, you talk to some people. That might mean instead of just saying, hey, man, good to see you. How are you? Blessed. Peace. (laughs) I'm blessed. Sorry, got to go. In your car already turning the key. It might mean you actually talk to people and say, hey, how was your week? How are you doing? Are there any ways that I can serve you? How's work? And doing a little bit of probing, asking a few questions may allow you to see some needs that you can help meet. We don't want to close off our hearts in bitterness, but we also don't want to close off our hearts in apathy and selfishness. And this is what he says. He says, if we do close our hearts against our brothers, how does God's love abide in us? Because he's saying, how could you say the love of God is in you if you're cutting brothers off and God never cut us off? He was merciful to us and not cold. So if Jesus is the example, we too can love each other in a costly way, even if that costs us some of our money and some of our stuff. But you know, this also means we have to be open about our needs. I mean, you know how we do. Someone will be like, hey man, how you doing? You know, you had the worst week in your life. You had three jobs. You lost all three of them. <laughs> hey man, how was your week? It was blessed. <laughs> Come on. I mean, we have to be actually open about our needs. It's, it's not a sign of immaturity. You shouldn't be ashamed to be dependent on people that God has given you. It's a sign of maturity, a godly dependence on the people God has given to care for you is a sign of maturity. It requires both sides, probing and being open so that we can obey God and help meet each other's needs. So if we're going to love one another, we need to, number one, lay our life down. We need to, number two, open our heart. That if Jesus opened his heart, not being stingy, we should follow his example. And number three, finally, we should love with our actions. Love with your actions. I think this is kind of the, the point, the main point of the passage. Verse 18, John says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. For some reason, we often have this category in our mind of love that's merely a feeling we express. There's a sense in which we can say we love somebody just because we think favorably of them when they come to mind. Warm thoughts come to mind. We think of people skipping through fields and teddy bears. That must mean I love them. Well, I want to be clear that John is not saying, hey, there are two kinds of love, the kind that's just words and then the kind that's action. He's saying, no, no, this isn't the kind of true love we're talking about. The only kind of true love is love that shows up in action. Love only has one form, and that form is active love. You cannot claim to be committed to the good of your brother or sister 
and be unwilling to do anything for the good of your brother and sister. It's like me saying, I'm committed to my neighborhood being clean, but I refuse to ever pick up any trash. Doesn't make any sense. Are you committed to the the, the good of your brother or sister? Our actions call our bluff. One of the modern things that scares me a little bit that I think might be black magic is a lie detector test. Lie detector tests, they scare me a little bit, but probably because I watch too many CSI episodes, and I'm afraid that at some point there's going to be an FBI agent staring in my face, slamming on the table, asking me questions that I don't have the answers to, but I should just stop watching strange TV shows. (laughs) But a lie detector test, you can say something with your words, and then it can show on the chart whether or not you're stressed in a way that suggests that you're lying, and it can detect if you're not telling the truth. And so I guess what Scripture is suggesting here then, that the lie detector test for our claim that we love one another is our actions. So it's nice that you say that you love your Christian brothers and sisters. What have your actions said? Think about your life this past week. Have your actions said that you love your brothers and sisters? Think about this past month, this past year. Have your actions said that you love your brothers and sisters? The reason why some of us don't love well, and I know this from my own heart, is because we don't like to be inconvenienced. We just like to love and serve people in convenient ways. Like, man, I want to serve the church. Um, Pastor, can I start a a PlayStation ministry? (laughs) Yeah, I just want to start a donut ministry. The Lord is just calling me. Real love is not convenient. I mean, if Jesus is the example for us, then how could we ever think that real love is always going to be convenient? If we're going to love one another, it's going to inconvenience us sometimes. It's going to be sacrificial. Here's a quick word to the introverts. I'm an introvert too, so I'm speaking to myself. So introverts, here's one way that love is going to be sacrificial sometimes. As an introvert personally, I'm not going to ask the introverts to raise their hand because you don't want that attention because you're an introvert, right? I love talking to other people when it's one-on-one in a small room. I love that. I do not love talking to 95 people at a time, like right after church service. I am so bad at small talk. I'm terrible at it. But here's the thing. Because I want to love other people, one of the things I'm always challenging myself to do is to push myself outside of myself. That if I'm going to love people, I actually have to make some sacrifices And sometimes, instead of just hanging out one-on-one in a coffee shop, I'm going to have to, like, go to a social gathering. I'm going to pray before I go, and then I'll go. (laughs) And that means after church, sometimes I may try to strike up conversations with several different people. I have to push myself outside of myself. We have to make sacrifices. It's not always going to be convenient. And to the extroverts, just know we need a break from you sometimes, okay? (laughs) It's too much. (laughs) Calm down. God bless you. So as John talks about real love being active love, I just want to be clear. He is not saying that we cannot love with our words. He's saying we can't just love with our words. But there are many examples in Scripture of how we should, we're commanded to love each other with our words. The point is that real love is active. I mean, think about some of the ways the New Testament does call us to love one another, to encourage one another, to admonish the idle, to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Older women teach the younger women, exhort one another, restore one another gently. These are all active commands. There's something active going on. 
So love is not just abstaining from mean things. Love is actually actively doing good. Right? So we can't just sit around and wait for opportunities to love people to come across our door. We can't wait till somebody knocks on our door and begs us. I mean, Jesus didn't wait for us to knock on his door and beg him to lay his life down. He actively went after us and sought us. We have to take initiative. When was the last time you sought out somebody to think about a way that you could love them in a tangible way? One thing that was amazing for us, uh, I remember somebody sent me and my wife an email. Out of the blue. We didn't ask them about this or nothing. They sent us an email and said, hey, here are the days I'm free. I want to babysit your kids. I was just like, hallelujah. (laughs) Bless the Lord. But this is people just actively seeking ways that they could love us. I mean, who, I want to challenge you this week. Who is there in your life, a Christian brother or sister, who you can reach out to and ask them about a way you can serve them? Right? Who can you say, hey, is there anything that you need right there? Are there any ways I can serve you? Can I watch your kids? Some of y'all don't need to watch people's kids. But those of you who should, say, hey, can I watch your kids? <laughs> hey, I know it's a busy month. Can I cook for you? I mean, again, some of y'all don't need it. But say, hey, <laughs> are there ways that I can serve you this week? <laughs> I mean, it's such a blessing to have somebody reach out to you and find ways to love on them. But I want to encourage you, be intentional, be active, take initiative to find ways to love and serve people. That's what Christ did for us. And if you can't do that, pray for people. What, what better way is there to love somebody than to talk to the God of the universe who's in control of everything about them? Isn't that a loving thing to do? So I know when when there's a message like this from Scripture where there are commands about how we should follow Jesus, especially something uh, particular like love, I know, at least for me, and I'm sure for many of us, we can tend to feel discouraged, right? Because we can think about all the ways that we don't do it how we're supposed to. We don't love people how we should. And my encouragement to you is not to leave here feeling discouraged or not to leave here merely just trying to try harder. My encouragement to you is to go Back to the cross. One, to go back to the cross because that's where we go for forgiveness for those very sins of not loving people the way that we should. But not only that, because the cross is the way that we know how we're supposed to love. Right? So when people say, hey, why do Christians always talk about the cross? Can't we talk about something more happy? Oh, hey, why are you all talking about the cross? In the message of Jesus, just to love one another. Here's the thing. We have no idea how to love one another without the cross. We don't know what love is apart from the cross, right? We have no power to love one another apart from the cross. We have, no, um, we have no access to God apart from the cross. We have absolutely nothing apart from the cross of Jesus. So if you want to love more, my main encouragement to you is to go back to the cross for forgiveness and to see what that love looks like. God's called us to love The way that we should love is we should lay our lives down. We should open our heart. We should love with our actions. Personally, I'm a very forgetful person, and one of the ways I remind myself of things is is post-it notes. So if you look at my office at home, there are a million post-it notes reminding me of things like, hey, brush your teeth today, just all kind of stuff. (laughs) And post-it notes are good because no matter what you're doing, if you've forgotten, you can see that and be reminded. Well, God has put his people in the world as reminders of his great love in Christ. 
My prayer is that God would use you guys as post-it notes all over the city of Austin, that when the world looks into what God is doing, they'll say, man, that's what God's love is like. Let's pray. Father, we come before you again in Jesus' name, and we thank you so much for your word. Father, and we thank you so much for the love of Jesus at the cross. Thank you so much that Christ laid his life down. Father, we thank you for drawing us to yourself, Father. And we pray that by your word, you would show us, continue to show us what love looks like through the death of your son. Father, that by your spirit, you would empower us to love like Jesus did. Father, and that through that, you would show the world what your love is like. Father, I pray that Austin Stone would be a church known not by just arguments or cool services, but that they would be a church known by loving one another the way that Jesus has loved them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.